So uh, we're, we're entering another series. Uh, we had our series on uh, through the word, the excellent word. And so now we're going to look at songs of ascents today. Um, and so uh, this is going to be, song, the, the psalms of ascent are actually Psalms 120 through 134. And so we're just going to go through part one today. We're going to look at uh, Psalms 120 through 123. And so you might be asking yourself, well, what does that mean, song of ascent? And you probably know ascent, you know, means going up. And so what happened is there's this group of psalms here, 120 through 134, that pilgrims would sing as they would go up to Jerusalem. You see, there were three main feasts where pilgrims would go up to Jerusalem. That was a feast of Passover, the feast of Pentecost, and the feast of Tabernacles. And so as they're going up to Jerusalem, and they, they call it always going up because it was higher in elevation than lands around it. So it was always about going up. It was these songs of ascent. So they would be singing these together. So as I was going through this study, it was, it was exciting to think about what that would have been like in there in the ancient world, you know, and they're singing these, song, these psalms in, in Hebrew as they go up. But as we're going to kind of move through, we're going to see that these different psalms, uh, they don't necessarily connect to one another. They kind of deal with some different issues and different things, and it kind of got me thinking, and it helped me realize that as believers, you know, our lives that we live are songs of ascent, right? If you're a believer today, you're ascending, okay? You're going up, and so the, the Bible as a whole actually becomes a song of ascent for us. It's, it's things for us to sing through, to work through, to study, to understand as we're making our way up. Now, here's the problem, though. As, as I was thinking about this in the Christian life, the believer's life as a song of ascent, I thought, well, it doesn't always feel like you're going up. It, sometimes you may be in a place today where it actually feels like you're going down. And, and then I was thinking about this, well, how does that work? Well, I don't know how big your mountain is that you're going to ascend. I know that as a believer, you're going to get to the top someday. And you'll know that you're at the top because Jesus will take you home. And that's how you know that you finished your climb but I thought, you know, I've watched a lot of movies and shows about, you know, uh, climbing mountains. And what I've seen is that you climb, but it's not just a steady climb, that actually sometimes there's valleys along the way where you actually have to go down if you're going to go forward. You're going to have to go down before you go up. And so I think that that's what God is doing in our lives when we go through such difficulties, when we go through the, you know, the valley of the shadow of death, it helps us to see that he's still got to work. So please understand, you may feel like you're in a valley today. But if you're a believer, you're still ascending. Okay, he's, he's still taking you onward and upward. And so that's what I want to, um, you know, help you to remember and want to help me to remember that as we study the word of God, that what's happening is God is taking us higher, but in order to take us higher, he has to take us deeper. And for us to take him to take us deeper, we got to go through those valleys and those difficult things. And so we're going to see some of those elements here as we move through these psalms. So let's look first of all at Psalm 120 here. Um, you see in the, in the New King James, if you have one, it says it's a plea for relief from bitter foes. So there's the psalmist who's unnamed. He is he's basically writing this and he's praying for God to relieve him because he's got enemies. And so that's an important aspect for us to understand that as believers, we are going to have enemies. Jesus wouldn't have labored to talk to us about loving our enemies if Christians weren't going to have enemies. That's just the reality of the situation. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 to begin with. We read, In my distress, I cried to the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. 
So he has this distress. He has this difficulty. It's interesting, you know, there's a lot of words for difficulty in the Bible. One of the most common ones in the New Testament is tribulation. And if you really look at it, I believe in the Greek, it's thlipsis, easy for me to say. And what it means is it means a squeezing or a narrow place. And so you might be feeling like that today, that this distress that you're in, you're like in a narrow place. The walls are squeezing in and you find difficulty. But what what I want you to do, what I want me to do in the midst of this is to cry out to God, right? That's what he does. In In my distress, he doesn't say I got on Facebook and started complaining. He said, in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. And, and also notice it says, and he heard me. That, that word heard in the Hebrew actually means answered. So, so the Lord answers. And then, you know, some of the times that we're in these distressing situations, these difficulties, the answer that comes from the Lord is wait. The answer that comes from the Lord is trust me. The, um, uh, if you're familiar with the book of Jeremiah, I've been, I've been listening to Damian Kyle teach through the book of Jeremiah, and, and um, you know, at one point, Jeremiah is complaining to the Lord about how hard his ministry is, and the Lord says to Jeremiah, um, if you've run with the footmen and they've wearied you, then how will you contend with horses? <laughs> he said, if you're complaining about this situation and you're not able to get through it, well, what happens when I want to take you to a more difficult situation? So you have to understand that, that, that even these times of difficulty and hardship, as stressful as they are, God's preparing you for something greater. You're an eternal being. Every one of you is gonna live forever. And so God is he's gonna take his time to prepare you to that eternal being he wants you to become. And so it's gonna be very challenging. We, we all know that if you wanna produce something quickly, right, like in a factory, you wanna do it quickly because it's disposable, it doesn't take much time. But if you're gonna build something that is valuable, something that lasts, something that has art and beauty to it, it takes a while. We don't live in a culture of craftsmen anymore. We live in a culture of mass production, use it for a while, throw it away. That's not how God works. God wants to build people who are forever. And so there's gonna be some some chiseling in that. (laughs) There's gonna be some sanding. There's gonna be some cutting away in the midst of that. And so notice, going back here to Psalm 1 and 2, we see that this is a prayer of deliverance, right? He's, he wants to be delivered. He says, deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deep, deceitful tongue. He, he wants to be delivered out of those who are slandering him, those who are talking bad about him, those who are criticizing him. He wants out. And it's just a reminder for us here as we look at this that as believers, we will always have detractors. You will always have detractors, You will always have those that speak ill of you. You will always have those who go against you, but the the remedy is always the same. Turn to the Lord. It's always the same. It's not to try to uh, change the message that you're sharing so that your detractors will like you. It's not to try to put your lamp under a basket because it's really blinding the eyes of the unbelievers around you. It's always to turn to the Lord. And so that's what he does. Let's look at verses three and four now. He says, what shall be given to you? Okay, so now he's shifting. He's shifting his talking to the Lord, right? Or he's, he's kind of, verses one and two, he's really recounting what he did to the Lord and asking the Lord to deliver him. But now verses three and four, he's actually shifting toward those who are his enemies. Okay, verses three and four, what shall be given to you or what shall be done to you, you false tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree. That's pretty radical, He's basically saying judgment is going to come upon the slanderer. Punishment is going to come to them. 
right? And so this is a pretty radical thing, but, it, but it's, it's something that we can say, right? We can say with a tear in our eye to the unbeliever who's unrepentant, hey, if you don't change your ways, judgment is coming. If you don't repent, judgment is coming. We don't love unbelievers by saying to them, hey, it'll probably all work out. It'll probably be fine. No, we say to them, hey, if you don't do something different, punishment's coming. But we always have to remember, as we think about these things, and we think about the enemies of our own life, if God chooses to punish those who go against us, that's his choice, but the punishment must come from him. We are not called to punish our adversaries. We are not called to go out and rip them to shreds on social media or whatever case it may be. That is not our calling. Okay, that's a very, very important issue. And because it's so important, uh, I want to sp- spend some time on this. So would you turn to Romans chapter 12 with me for just a moment? Romans chapter 12. And I think this is a, a helpful reminder for us because no matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, there's still some element of pride in us. And if you're mad at that statement, you know the rest. <laughs> so, so the fact of the matter is that we have this pride. So when people come against us and they offend us or they, they touch what's dear to us, then we just want to go after them. That's our natural tendency. And so it's helpful for us to really take to heart what the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in Romans 12. I wanna go through verses 14 through 21 because I I believe it's a section of scripture that should be near and dear to our hearts, something for us to hold on to. And I believe that as, as believers, if we can live this life out in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of detractors and slanderers, it's gonna really reveal Christ to this world. This is what Paul writes starting in verse 14. He says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Right? This, is, this is straight out of Jesus' handbook. Right? Pray for your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Okay, So bless them. Then verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's excellent. Right? Just really practical. Even if you're going through a bad time and someone's rejoicing, rejoice with them. If you're going through a good time and someone's weeping, then go in and comfort them. Right? It's a beautiful picture. All right? Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. In other words, you know, kind of be on the same page, just love one another. Do not set your mind on high things, uh, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion, okay? So just caring about others, and maybe they're kind of in a quote-unquote lower station in life than you are. Don't act like you're better than they are. Love them, care for them, reach out to them. Be humble, realize you could be wrong. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Notice it says no one there. It doesn't say, well, repay, you know, don't repay most people evil for evil, but that guy over there, you really take care of him. No, no, it says repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. I love that. Always be about the good things. Always be about the right things. And then verse 18, incredible. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Wonderful. So it's, so it, it's not about, so, so someone may be my enemy and want to be at war with me. I don't have to be at war with him. I could say as, as much as it depends on me, I'm going to be peaceable toward him. He may not want to have peace with me. That's, that's his choice. That's his decision. But as for me, I'm going to seek to be at peace with him. And then he says, verse 19, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place for wrath. 
For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so if any vengeance needs to happen, if any repayment needs to happen, if any you know, just punishment needs to happen, God can do it. Okay, so for you and I, it's to take a step back and say, I'm gonna pray for this person, I'm gonna love this person as much as I can, and if they need to be punished by God, then he can do it, I'm not going to. Verse 20, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. There are a lot of different takes on this verse. <laughs> I will let you study on your own. There's a whole different thing. It can't mean this will really destroy him because <laughs> that would violate the whole context. The idea seems to indicate that by loving your enemies, you may actually bring them in, that they'll realize the error of their ways. And then verse 21, do not, become, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You and I, will not overcome the evil of this world by being evil, okay? And that's, that's why so many things go wrong with politics. Because one side says, oh, this side is evil. Well, let me adopt evil tactics to go against them. It's not gonna work. So for you and I as believers, it's clear, right? We're gonna be in hard situations. We're gonna be in difficulty. We're gonna have enemies. But our, our response is to go to the Lord and to do what the Lord says to, for us to do not to punish them. So I think that's a very important, important reminder for us. So if you would turn back to Psalm 120 now, we'll move into verses five through seven. The psalmist says, woe is me that I dwell in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. So the psalmist is frustrated with his living condition. He's tired of it. He's tired of living among the violent. He's tired of living among those who want war. He simply wants to live in a land of peace. And I would argue that this is the heart cry of believers, wanting to live in peace. Wanting to, to be in a situation where things go well, where family members get along together, to go to a family reunion and no one throws anything at anyone else. <laughs> Right? That, that, that's, that's what we want. And we understand that, that this is the heart cry, and it should be. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. That when you and I, and it, it, this, the word peacemaker there in the Greek, it, it speaks of people who actively are trying to reconcile people together. You're trying to reconcile, that's, the, that's God. Well, why is that like God? Why were we called sons of God? Because that's the ministry of reconciliation. What was Jesus doing on the cross but reconciling the world to God? And so we've been given that ministry of reconciliation. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, Romans 12, 18, I just read it, but I'll read it again. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And then Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue peace with all. And so if you are frustrated about living in this world and the lack of peace and the fighting and the discord and all those things, please understand you're in good company. That that's the heart of a believer. The heart of a believer is to want heaven. Heaven is the ultimate place of peace. Heaven is a place where you're not gonna have to lock your doors. <laughs> and you're not gonna have any a need to, uh, for security systems. It's gonna be a place where we're reconciled completely to God, reconciled to one another. It's gonna be a wonderful place. So, so don't, don't squeeze that down. Let it, let it 
let it affect you that you don't, there's not peace in this world. Because the one, what it's gonna say is, I'm not built for this world. I'm built for heaven. And as long as I'm here, while I'm making my ascent, I'm gonna see if I can bring peace into other people's lives. I'm gonna see where I can go, wherever I go, if there's, a, there's peace comes with me. It's interesting, when Jesus sent out the, the disciples on their first kind of short-term mission trip, he says, you know, when you go into a house, if they receive you, let your peace come upon it. He said, if they don't receive you, then kick the dust off and, and kind of take your peace back to you. So you and I, let us bring our peace upon the homes and businesses and schools that we're a part of. Let's bring the peace of God. That's possible because Jesus says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give. So you and I, as people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, we can bring peace into situations. And, and so th- that's, that's the heart. But don't lose that. Don't say, well, I've got to fight like the world fights for now. I, I just got to kind of adopt the world's policies and just kind of do these things. And I got to, no, no, be different. You have the power to be different. No believer has made an impact for God in this world by becoming more like the world's. <laughs> We have to become more like Christ. Christ never said, you know, I'm, I'm going to kind of really stop being so me-like. Just kind of do things kind of the worldly because it's, it's really causing me too much hassle. No, he always was himself. And so we do the best for this world the more that we become like him. All right, let's move on to Psalm 121 here. Verses 1 and 2, we read, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And and so when we're looking for help, let's look to the Lord for help. Let's look to the Lord for help. Now, uh, why can he help? How can he help? Well, we know his character, uh, but but why can we trust him that he is able to help? Well, we see that at the end of verse 2, because he made heaven and earth. He's the creator. He made all things, all things belong to him. It talks in, in Colossians 1 about how all things were made through Jesus and for Jesus and by Jesus and in him all things consist. All things are coming back to him. And, and so that's what we need to do, that we need to look to the Lord as our creator for help in time of need. But here's interesting. The, the Lord often will use intermediaries, right? You need help and the Lord will use fellow believers to bring that help. So it's important for us to remember that that we're in a community, we're in a body of believers. And so when we're looking for that help, we cry out to God for help, and he may help just directly, but he also may help indirectly. He may help through people and through resources and things such as that. And so I was thinking a lot about this this week and just trying to really kind of track how God does things. And, And one of the things that I've said for the last year is that God works both sides of the equation. That's kind of taken from algebra. You know, you have the equal sign in the middle. So for some of you, I'm, this is going to be PTSD. You know, um, <laughs> you have that equal sign in the middle, and then there's those two, you know, this, you know it's, it's ugly. It's math, and it's, it's got numbers and letters, you know, and all kinds of things in there, and you have to solve to see these two sides to be equal. And so I've often talked that, about that with the Lord, or that, that the, I've, I thought that the Lord works both sides of the equation right? And he does. He does. He's working in your life, but he's also working in life. But, but I, I've kind of walked a little bit further with the Lord. I realize it, it's actually not algebra. It's more like calculus. <laughs> it really is. So I've been thinking a lot this week about God's calculus and about he's working these things. And I, I remember, you know, when, uh, when Brandy and I were in college and she was an engineering student and I was something that was less than an engineering student. And I remember her taking Cal 1 and Cal 2 and Cal 3 and engineering calculus. And and then I remember she took something called differential equations. 
And I just remember looking at that book and like, it's not for me. And, uh, <laughs> and so, but, but you know what? That's really what it is when we try to kind of look into the book of what God's doing. And it's, he, but we just can't figure it out. But he's got his plans. And his timing is not our timing. As someone who used to come to the church years ago said, God doesn't buy his watches at Walmart. <laughs> he has a different way of doing things. And so I was reminded of a, of a verse, and it's, it's a chapter that I would encourage you to read sometime this week, Isaiah chapter 55. Um, I ended up reading through the whole chapter yesterday, and there's just, there is just a treasure trove in Isaiah 55. There's just so much good stuff. I just want to read for you two verses from Isaiah 55. The verses 8 and 9 kind of related to God's calculus. God says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's interesting. You know, the, the Lord... Um, led me to memorize this, you know, 20 plus years ago, those verses. And it's interesting because from time to time, they'll keep coming to my head, but they actually get deeper and deeper as I realize his thoughts are, are way more complex than I ever realized, way higher above. And, and so really the exhortation for you and for me as believers, as we make this ascent, is to trust God even though we can't understand what he's doing. To trust God even though we can't understand what he's doing. And so it's, it's, um, there's kind of a little way of saying it. Uh, when you, you can't track him, still trust him. When you can't track him, still trust him. All right, let's continue on here in Psalm 121. We'll look at verses three through eight, and we're gonna see some, some things that, that God will do in the believer's life. He says, he will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. He shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. So we've talked a bunch of times about how, you know, many are the, you know, uh, many of the tribulations of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Right? We understand that, and that final delivery he'll make is, is when he delivers us either through the rapture of the church or through death, right? delivers us to heaven. And so just some things I want you to see here in verses three through eight is number one is God gives us stability. Right? God gives us stability. He will not allow your foot to be moved. And so it's interesting, God can give you stability even if you lose your physical health and you're, you know, confined to, um, you know, to a, like a weakened state, you can actually still be stable. You can be somebody who's strong in that condition. Uh, I, was, I remember reading about Corey Ten Boom. I encourage you to read about her, a wonderful life. And at the end of her life, she couldn't speak, and yet people would visit her, and her radiant joy would be so much, they would be greatly impacted. So, so she was a woman who, though her physical health was almost completely failed, and yet she wasn't moved. She was someone who was still moving, um, God was still moving through her, so God will give us stability. Number two, and I, and I love this one, uh, God is always awake. <laughs> God is always on the job. Notice, it says, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. That's really important. I like to watch a lot of, you know, action movies, and what do they do? They always wait till like, the, you know, the guy on guard is asleep to break into the facility and do those sort of things. God's never asleep. God's, God's never taking a nap. 
right? He, God the Father is always there. He was always ready for us. And so that's important for us that any time of the day or night, we can call out to God. He's always there. So God's always awake. He's always on the job. Third thing we see here is God is our protector, right? Lord's your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. In other words, that God is gonna continue to protect. And then we see at the verse seven there in verse eight, he shall preserve you, okay? So, so, so God's got it under control. Now, as we look at this, ultimately, if we're honest, we say, well, I want him to protect me in a little different way or preserve me in a little different way. I want to, why don't you wrap me in some spiritual bubble wrap, and then wherever I go, I'll just bounce off things, and nothing will hurt me. That's not how he does, right? If, you're, if, if he's going to continue to craft us, to mold us, to shape us, he's going to have to heat us up. He's going to have to sand us down. He's going to have to carve out some things for his glory. And, and so as we look at verses three through eight, my exhortation to you and to me is that we would take this on faith. That we would trust that what he's doing, that we would trust that what God allows, he's using for our good and for his glory. That, that that's what he's doing. And so the ultimate example of this, as I was thinking, is the cross. The cross is the ultimate example of how God works. You see, from a purely human standpoint, the cross seems like a preventable tragedy. We have this wonderful guy, Jesus, and he's pretty young still, and what happens, he gets caught up and, you know, by the political forces, and he's killed, and oh, what a tragedy. That's how it looks from a human standpoint. But from the st- divine standpoint, it's the greatest moment in human history, that the greatest man that who's ever lived, truly God and truly man, died for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God and have the hope of eternity with God. And so, so this is important for us because if we say, if, if we honor what God did at the cross, then when we look at our own lives, and Jesus has already told us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, then when God does some workings that from our purely human standpoint look pretty bad, we have to say, well, he's already proven himself in that greatest instance at the cross, then maybe I can trust him in what he's doing in my life. If, if, if he is crucifying me right now, it, then it's got to be for a good purpose. It's got to be for a good reason what he's doing. Let us never forget Romans 8.28. And if you go to this church, you probably won't. Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That verse remains in your Bible. It remains true. All right, let's move on to Psalm 122. Now here we have a song of ascents, but it's written by David. So this is David's, one of David's songs of ascent. And verses one and two, uh, we have a little happier tone, right? I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. So David's pumped up about going to Jerusalem. David's pumped up about going in and worshiping the Lord. And so here we see the joy of, the worship, of worshiping the Lord. And it's, it's cool to see when, when this fellowship, when we come in, when we sing worship to the Lord, and, and the people are excited to come in and want to praise God. And, and that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so it's good. And, and because really true worship is a desire to spend time with God. True worship is a desire to know God as he really is, to communi- commune with him, communicate with him. 
I, I love, and, and so there, it takes a certain purity of heart, right? Purity of heart is really wanting to see God. I, I love how C.S. Lewis put it in, the, in the, his book, The Problem of Pain. He said, it is safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God, for only the pure in heart want to. <laughs> it's beautiful. And, and so worship is really a desire to say, man, I just want to be near God. Okay? It, it's, it's like Moses, where Moses said, you know, how about just show me your glory? And God's like, ah, it's too much for you, Mo. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to kind of hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to kind of let you see my, kind of my afterglow, if you will. I'm going to just let you see a little bit of the backside of kind of some of my glory. And it was too much for the people, right? Moses comes down the mountain, and people are like, whoo, put a veil on, Mo. It's too much for us. It's too much. But, but that's the heart of worship is like, I want to see. So this is what makes heaven heaven. What makes heaven heaven is God's there. Now, I think there's going to be a lot of super cool things beyond I could, we could ever ask or imagine in heaven. But the central thing about heaven and why it makes it so awesome is because we're going to see God. And that's what he's built us for. You see, if you're in a place today and you're a believer, but you really don't want to worship God, then something's wrong. Okay, and, and so some, something's not right. If you find yourself in a place where just kind of however, whether it's through the word or through singing or whatever it is, and you're just like, you're not feeling it, then, then you need to go and spend some time with God until that gets worked out. Okay, go on a walk with God. You know, I mean, maybe today put on a raincoat or whatever it is. You know, go out for a walk with God and, and settle it because see, heaven is a place filled with God's manifest presence where people worship him, where we'll worship him. So if we're not in a place today of wanting to worship him, then something is, is off. Something is not right. And so we need to see about that. And, and this is, is wonderfully illustrated for us um, in, back in Genesis chapter three. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, it tells us that um, God came walking in the cool of the evening to spend time with Adam and Eve. And, and so what happened, though, is because they had sinned, they had taken of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their relationship with each other was broken, their relationship with God was broken, so they hid from him. Okay? And, and so until that was resolved, things weren't going to work out. So if we find ourselves kind of in a sophisticated, modern way, hiding from God, kind of avoiding his presence, filling our time with things that are really not about him because we don't want to really spend time in his presence, then, then that's an indication that something's wrong. So um, you, just as we can kind of ignore, you know, like on our, our da car dashboard <laughs> check engine <laughs> or whatever it means, you know, if your sensors are working, that's an indication something's wrong. So it is. If we don't really want to worship God right now, let that be the kind of the check engine light. You know, maybe the, the check heart light. And, and I don't say this, please hear me. Please hear my heart. I don't say this to pick on you. It, it's, I have plenty of things going on in my life. I have plenty of things wrong with me that I don't need to spend Sunday morning feeling better about myself picking on people. <laughs> that's, really, that's really not what I'm here for. If I, I could spend all week seeing all the bad things about me. What I, is, I, what, what I want for you is I want you to have as full a relationship with God as possible. And so it's my job, the, the job God's given me in, in this local fellowship is to exhort when I need to exhort, encourage when I need to encourage, you know, to, to kind of point to something that's not right. But, but I don't know individually. God only knows your heart. It's my job just to, to bring the message. So if you're in a place today, again, that you're not worshiping the Lord, 
please take that as an indication that something is wrong. But here, take as an indication something wrong, but that God wants to make right. God wants to restore that. God wants to have a vibrant fellowship with you. He loves that. He wants to go walking with you in the cool of the evening. He wants to do those things. And here's how I know he wants to do that with you is because he sent his son to the cross for you. Romans 5 says, God demonstrates his own love for us and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if he sent his son to die for you, if he wants to spend eternity with you, I have a pretty good idea he wants to spend today with you. And every day as you ascend to him. Let's read verses three through five now. Psalm 122 says, Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. And so, you know, there in verse four, to the testimony of Israel, it's really talking about, you know, the, the, the ark and about how God is there. And, and so it's this idea of getting to go up to where God manifests his presence. You know, in the tabernacle um, and then later in the temple, then God would manifest his presence there between the cherubim of the ark of the covenant there at the mercy seat. And so it was exciting. David was excited to go up. But notice the heart behind it is to to go up to give thanks. See that in verse 4. To give thanks to the name of the Lord. Now, when when we're going through a, a kind of a valley season, as we're ascending and we have to kind of go down to a valley to get to the other side, oftentimes the way our own flesh works, the world works, the demonic forces work, is we lose track of anything to give thanks for. It's very easy. And, and so, so uh, one exercise that's good is to actually just get a, out a sheet of paper and start just writing th- some things down that you can give thanks for. But, but sometimes even then, you're just kind of like, you can't get started. It feels like there's a block. Here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you to do a word search in the Bible for thanks and thanksgiving. And then just kind of start praying through some of those verses, reading those verses. And then usually what will happen is you put yourself in that position, thanksgiving will start welling up in you. And so it's kind of a little kickstart to help that. And so, so I did that. You know, I, I was looking for some verses on thanks. And, and this is one that really spoke to me. I'll share it with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Paul writes, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. So it's a wonderful verse that gives us really two main reasons to be thankful. Reason number one is that as believers, we will triumph in Christ. That's beautiful. That that I can walk triumphantly. The world can say, oh, you're a loser and it's not working and things aren't going. And and that's fine. That's their freedom to say that. I can know that as a born-again believer walking in the Spirit, I'm triumphing in Christ. It may not look like it right now. Okay, It may not look like it. But I know that that's true. So that's something to give thanks about. And the second thing to give thanks about here in this verse, it says that, that through us, the knowledge of Christ is spread. Notice how he says it. Through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Now Paul tells us also that as we spread the fragrance of Christ, that it's a beautiful fragrance to those who believe, but to those who are perishing, it stinks. Okay? And so, so this is something for us to be thankful for. God is leading us in triumph, and, but also, and, and he's also spreading the knowledge of Christ through us. It's beautiful, and so much to pray about, and that's just one verse on thankfulness. There are countless verses for us to find. 
And, and so there are countless things to be thankful for in the past, in the present, and in the future. It's just up to us to take some time to look for those things. All right, let's move on to verses 6 through 9 now. We read, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces, for the sake of my brethren and companions. And I will now say, peace be within you, because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Okay, so we often hear pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and it's right here, and we should. We should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. God still has plans to the physical descendants of Abraham. God is still going to work. God still has covenants to fulfill with them. And I don't know if it's going to be near. I don't know if it's going to be far. And guess what? You don't either. (laughs) None of us knows when that time is. But God's still going to do it. So for, for us as believers, we should continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for God's work being done there. But, but notice also here, um, it's, it's integrated in is that the house of God is there, right? He says, you know, because the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. So we still pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but guess what? The house of God isn't there anymore, right? The, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and, and so what's going on? In the new covenant, what's the house of God? Well, the house of God are believers, Believers are the house of God. And so would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 for just a moment? Ephesians chapter 2. As you're turning there, uh, please keep in mind that this church in Ephesus, uh, it was a Gentile church by and large. It was a a church that was made up of Greeks and um, that they had been grafted in to the work that God was doing in this world, that that Gentiles were a part of the church. So the, the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles both who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So I love the imagery here, Ephesians 2, looking at verses 19 through 22. Paul writes, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners. So he's speaking to Gentiles, right? Gentiles who were outside of the covenant have now been brought in. He says you're no longer foreigners um, and strangers, but fellow citizens. That's awesome. They've gotten their citizenship. They got their uh, heavenly passport, if you will. Uh, It was given to them, and it says, with the saints and members of the household of God. That word household really speaks of a family, right? So they all believers, though we don't treat each other that that way all the time, we're actually all a part of the same family, right? Because we all have the same father, right? And and if we can put it this way in Jesus, you know, and as he's been referred to as we have the same elder brother, if you will, right? And so, and then notice verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So this familiar imagery, Jesus is a chief cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation, everything built on him. Verse 21, notice in whom, so it's in Jesus, the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So if I understand this imagery correctly, what Paul says and what Peter says and what others say, you kind of, kind of make this image in your mind that individually we are t- the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. So individually we're temple of the Holy Spirit, but also collectively we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because what he says here is that we're these individual stones that are being fit together. So imagine this. There's this, this beautiful building that God is making, the church. 
And you and I are each a stone fitted together in there and we're dwell, God's Holy Spirit is dwelling in us. That's a wonderful thing. And so it helps us to understand that everywhere we go, God goes. Everywhere we go, God is working, he's moving, and so we don't have to go to Jerusalem to get closer to God. But wherever we go, God's there. And so it's really important for us to understand that. And then to kind of the, the practical application for this is when you realize that God has created every person that you meet and th- those believers are people who are, are inhabited with the Holy Spirit, then you should treat them differently. But then when you meet an unbeliever, you realize, well, this is a person who God has made and God desires to dwell within them. So that gives them importance as well. And so that's why we want to treat them with kindness and respect and, and you know, treat them with peace, even though they may be our enemies. All right, let's move on to Psalm 123 now. Back to the Psalms. Now to Psalm 123, a song of ascents. Verse 1. Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. And so he lifts his eyes up. He looks up. He's looking at God, right, who dwells in the heavens. And so again, looking up to God for help. This is what we're going to see. The, the, the context here is, you know, in the New King James, it says prayer for relief from contempt. It's, it's looking up to God. It's looking up to the one who can help us. Verse two, I, please hold on to this imagery. I love this imagery. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to their, the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. And so looking to God for mercy is always as a lesser looking to a greater. That's so important. It's a lesser looking to a greater. And I'll just, I'll just be frank with you guys. A lot of my frustration in prayer is because I know he's the greater. And I know that if he has his calculus and he's working it one way, I know that you know, I wasn't good at calculus. <laughs> and I want him to do things my way and there's a frustration in my heart because I know he's too big for me to move. But whenever my heart's that way, it's because I'm really not trusting him. I'm not trusting his plans and his purposes. I'm just kind of wanting things done my way. But it's, it's, it's vital that you and I settle in our hearts. He's the greater and we're the lesser. He is the greater, we're the lesser. I love that imagery as a, as a servant looks to their master, as a maid looks to her mistress. And so we must realize that we're less than God and that we will always be below him. Though in heaven, he's going to, you know, Jesus is going to let us sit on the throne, if you will. We're never going to be confused about whose throne it is. Okay, it's, it's always his throne. As it's been well said, there are no help wanted signs in the Trinity. All right, it is, that, that God is always going to be God. And we're going to be way better than we are now, right? I'm, I'm hoping for the flowing hair when I get to heaven. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be amazing, you know. But the fact of the matter is, He's always greater. But here's the wonderful thing. When you and I don't fight against that, when you and I just acknowledge, we get into current reality, we see things as they actually are, there's help. Uh, A a common verse in the New Testament that's quoted from the old is, I'll give you one place it's quoted, it's James 4, 6. It says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's beautiful, it's super easy. How do I get grace? Humbling myself. Jesus says, hey, you wanna be exalted? Humble yourself. Hey, hey, you want to be the greatest? Go ahead and take the least. 
You wanna have the best spot? Go ahead and take the lowest spot. It's so simple, and guess what? There's always room there. People aren't fighting to be humble. (laughs) People are not fighting for last place. So you and I can receive grace from God if we'll be humble, if we'll realize that he is who he is. And all that we're doing, it's not like we're trying to believe something that's not true. We're just actually believing what is true, that God is God and that I'm not, and that we can trust him. All right, verses three and four. It says, have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease with the contempt of the proud. And so the psalmist, again, he's asking for mercy. He needs mercy in the midst of difficulty. And, and what I want to, you know, it's kind of a, a little bit of a bummer note to, to, to end on, but it's, it's vital, it's true, it's what the scriptures say. You know, we're going to need mercy in the midst of difficulty because this is going to be a familiar situation to us as long as we're in this world. I, I would love to tell you that today is going to be the last hard day of your life, but I would be lying to you. And so we're going to have that, but guess what? God is with us in it. There's mercy available in the midst of that. God is still moving us onward and upward, further up, further in, as we move through these things. So I'd encourage you today to to keep fighting the good fight, to keep moving forward, to, to remember what Jesus said in John 16, verse 33. He said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. I'm going to close with three reminders taken from our study. Reminder number one, as we continue our ascent, we will encounter enemies along the way. We're going to encounter them. Okay, we, we, we kind of, it's easy for us as Christians to lament and the world's getting worse and worse and things are getting this way and it's, you know, and all that may be true, but actually it's not helpful to fixate on as to what's more helpful is saying, well, I have all these enemies coming against me. This is more opportunity for me to try to be at peace with all men. This is more opportunity for me to keep sharing the light. This is, this is something that God is working for my ultimate glory. And so I, I'm gonna seek to his spirit for help in the time that I live in. Second thing to remind, remember is that as we continue our ascent, look up, not down. Look up, not down. Keep your eyes on the Lord. How many movies have you watched when people are in a high place? Don't look down. (laughs) Don't look down. And I think that's what the Lord would say to us. Don't look down. Keep on looking up. Keep on turning your eyes up to the Lord. Third reminder, as we continue our ascent, we must remember that we are not alone. We're not alone. The Holy Spirit is with us, indwelling us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit and that we're connected with other believers, also filled with the Holy Spirit, who God is going to use to help us in our difficulty in time of need. Let's pray.